0: to make it real compared
1: to what Hashtag Women's March Hashtag Me Too Hashtag Black Lives Matter Hashtag Action Plan On the next Trans Adams show we're talking next steps running for office with our guest Ada Fox a woman who's done it herself This Brooklynites insurgent campaign almost landed her a seat on the New York City Council
2: you really have to be able to talk to people about what their interests are and make sure that they really understand what's going on out there. And that's difficult. It's not something that can be done fast. And even though we believe the revolution will be televised, it is hard to communicate some of these concepts.
1: And what's next? 8 Day's gearing up to run again and telling you how you can do it too. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show. First, the news.
0: Trails of troubles, rows of battles,
1: eyes
0: of victory, we
1: shall walk. Dateline 2016. Donald Trump is elected president. Dateline 2017, the Women's March. More than 5 million women, men, and children take to the streets on every continent in protest. 673 marches in all. The global event is the single largest mass protest in world history. And for those who would resist all such human rights demands until hell freezes over... Time's up. The hellish notion of taking America back even inspired a women's march in Antarctica. Dateline 2018. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Hashtag Me Too. Hashtag Action plan. A second march, a brand new day. All across the country, people who never thought of getting into politics are taking action, gearing up to run for office, running for their lives and ours. Our guest on the Janice Adams show today is a woman who's done it herself twice, narrowly missing a seat on the New York City Council. She's Ada Fox. I first met Ada as she canvassed a Brooklyn neighborhood, going door to door, shaking hand after hand, getting out the vote.
0: I walked down by the river, I turned my head up high, I saw that silver lining that was hanging in the sky. Well, I saw trails of the trouble, the roads of the
1: battles, as a victory we shall be. Day what brought you into politics?
2: I've always been interested in fighting for social justice and making sure that our communities get the, the very best that we deserve. When I was growing up, both of my parents were very active in the civil rights movement. So, you know, it was instilled in me that I, um, I need to give back to my community and I need to fight for justice. And uh, that feeling only continued to grow as I look around and I see some of the injustices that are going on. And some are big, you know, on a macro scale politically in terms of civil rights, in terms of our legal rights. But some of them are small even, you know, making sure that, you know, we have access to the best education, the best teachers, getting books in school, you know, getting the best health care. Um, you know, there are so many ways that our communities are uh, overwhelmed and overburdened and overtaxed. And and I think somebody's got to stand up and, and say these things and make sure that we all know that we have a right, for, a right to have better.
1: What was your yes, I'm going to do it moment?
2: I don't think there was a yes, I'm going to do it. It was more like It was something that I always knew that I wanted to do, but I didn't think that I could. I think the first time it popped into my head, I was 10 and I thought, you know, we were talking about, you know, in social studies class talking about, you know, the U.S. government and running for president. And I thought, I want to run for president. And then the second thought was, that's absurd, obviously, um, being a woman and being black. And I think I had these limitations in my head for a long time. And as I got older and really began doing some introspection about what it was that I wanted to accomplish in my life, what I wanted to be doing with my life, I kind of stopped saying no and stopped saying I can't and started saying, well, let's see, let's start on the journey and see where it leads.
1: I love that from this 10 year old who decides, you know who who really feels almost called to this because actually that almost sounds to me like when someone says I want to be a dancer when I grow up and then they do become a dancer so it it, it is something that you experience young. Um, what was therefore your first step in terms of making this? And and I'm asking you these things because I think that as we are speaking, there are people who are listening to this and saying. The same thing, I want to do this, but I really thought I couldn't. So how do you do this? Where did you start? I
2: think that there are, are as many paths as there are types of people or you know people out there. So I, I will tell how I started, but I want anybody listening to know that you know there is a path for you if this is something that you want to do. I had been, in my former life, I was getting a PhD in anthropology, so completely different field. And I had actually moved to Amsterdam to do research for my dissertation. Then when I was there, decided I you know, academia wasn't for me. And uh, so I quit school, I got a job, and I just lived there for three years. And um, it was a fantastic experience. I'm so glad I did it. But towards the end of my stay, um I was trying to figure out my next steps, where what I was going to do, where I was going to go, and, and whether I even wanted to stay abroad. And I think the first step for me was to accept that I wouldn't know the, what the whole path looked like, and I wouldn't know what each step was. But I had to trust a little bit, and I had to just start. So when I moved back to New York, I, it had, I had been away for 15 years. You know, after high school, I left for college, then I went on to grad school, then to live in Amsterdam. So I just wasn't uh, here for a long time, and, and a lot of my old friends and connections had moved on or gone into different fields. So my first start was to just start volunteering on every political campaign that I could, start to understand the political landscape out there, who the people were, um, look for my local uh, political club, Democratic club, uh, go to you know, Brooklyn Young Democrats meetings, go to find out who my local district leaders were, uh, and, and go and talk to them and try to attend their meetings or any of their events, and volunteer and get involved. Um, so I did that the first six months or so that I was back, I volunteered on a ton of campaigns and I, and one of them happened to be, um, when Tish James first ran and won for city council, she ran on the working families party line. That was when James Davis had been, um, been killed in the council chambers. And so she was running in that special election. Excuse so, me, this
1: is in New York.
2: Yes, in yes. Brooklyn. And uh, and that was even before I lived in Brooklyn. I was actually staying with my grandmother in the Bronx, but she seemed like a um, you know a political figure of conscience and uh, someone that you know I might want to emulate. So I decided to go and work on her uh, campaign, and I got to meet a lot of people in um you know in the local uh lefty sort of political scene. There were a lot of unions working on that campaign, so I met a lot of union people. And I I treated the experience like a job. You know, I would show up at nine o'clock and I would stay, you know, whatever set amount of hours I had said. I mean I would say in advance what I was going to do and then I would carry out what I said I was going to do and uh, you know, was willing to do anything and, and really committed a lot of time and effort. And I, I think that a lot of people saw that in me and um, saw someone who really could be a, um, an important asset in the future. So it didn't turn into a job right away, but I think I caught the eye of a lot of people. And eventually, you know, some other job opened up and someone uh, recommended that I apply for that. And I got that job, which was working on Howard Dean's uh, campaign for president. And uh, and so I ended up going to Charleston, South Carolina for two months to work on, um, you know, the campaign in preparation for, uh, I guess that was Super Tuesday back then. Uh, You know, this was before the Scream. Um, obviously that, you know, completely derailed the campaign. And then the whole thing was, um, over by the the primary.
1: For those people who don't know the Howard Dean scream that you were talking about, could you just fill us in on that?
2: I, you know, frankly, I missed it too, because we were working and I never watched TV, so I never saw it. But, um, you know, Howard Dean had a, a rally or, or something and, um, uh, where you know he was in a big uh, auditorium or, or a big forum. There were lots of uh, volunteers and en- enthusiastic supporters there, and you know caught up in the mood and the movement and speaking loudly in order to be heard by everyone. At the end of his um, s- uh, speech, he I guess did something that was kind of like a scream or a yeehaw or something. And we're
1: going to Washington D.C. to take back the White House.
2: And the the media went wild with it. It went viral, like, you know, so to speak. And um,
1: it was a sports scream as opposed to a politician scream. Yeah, (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Um,
2: People, I guess people felt that or people who were not his supporters felt that it was an indication that he had a wild spirit and couldn't be contained.
1: Well, gone are the days, I mean, when just a mere scream could get you unelected. Now, molesting women. (laughs) What's the problem? So, (laughs) anyway...
2: Yes. So in any event, um, that was it was a great experience, though. There were a lot of unions. The the service industry unions were much were very politically engaged and they would mobilize a lot of their members and staff to go work on campaigns in either presidential campaigns or other union campaigns. And so I met um, a number of people from 1199 while I was down there, you know, became friends And uh, 1199 happened to be creating a new division uh, within their new organizing department.
1: That's Local 1199, Service Employees International Union, which is the largest healthcare union in the nation.
2: And I was invited to apply and I ultimately got a job there. And so through that experience, uh, I was able to not only understand more about the labor world and do that work, but because they were so politically engaged, I didn't work in the political department, but I, uh, anytime there was any campaign of any kind, you know, I was the first one to volunteer and say, hey, I'll go. And so I worked on lots of campaigns, both in the city and also in other states, either, you know, presidential or gubernatorial, Um, even state senate campaigns and as well as other unions that were having, you know, local um, union campaigns where they were trying to organize a new workplace or or whatever it might be. So I spent time in Chicago and, and other places. And so it was a great experience just in terms of learning how to organize people. How do you talk to people? How do you engage in them, and motivate them around a particular issue? And I think that is always going to be the core of a political um, career is because, you know, we're, we're trying to get large amounts of people to understand why an issue it impacts them and why they need to care about it and, and actually take action. And what action do they need to take? so often i think some of our politicians um, they miss the mark by either not translating the message so that each and every person can understand what the issue is and why they're voting for or against their best interest and i you know when hillary clinton was running this past term there's a lot of uh, people trying to understand you know why she lost and there are a lot of theories out there. And I hear some people saying that she didn't speak to the working man and help them understand why she was the better choice and that Donald Trump was able to do that in a way that she couldn't. And I kind of felt like this was not her failing. This was the failing of you know the unions that represent those particular industries. I mean, they... Many uh, unions require that the leadership of the unions have been members. Um, so you don't you're not hiring people from outside who have some skill set, but you're cultivating that skill set from inside, which I think is a great policy. and part of the reason to do it is because you want to always have people, in power who understand exactly what, you know, the the working member is going through and has lived through it and knows how to speak to it. And so that, you know, those unions that supported her or, you know, agreed to endorse her, you know, it was on them to be able to explain to your regular member why she might have been better choice instead of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump was allowed to, to speak, and, and I believe just outright lie. And people were, you know, didn't see through it or were allowed to uh, be distracted by, you know, other issues that really aren't as relevant as whether you're going to have a job next year, whether you're going to be able to retire at the age that you were hoping for. Um, or, you know, whether you are going to be working until the day you die and um, and still not be able to really support yourself and your family.
1: When we come back, more with our guest, A. Day Fox, after the break. Oh, we
0: got trails, trails of trouble, and we got our roads, roads of a battle. Hands of victory, we shall walk. Feminists don't have a sense of humor Feminists just want to be alone Boo hoo 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 Feminists spread vicious lies and rumors They have a tumor on their funny bone
1: We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Aida Fox. She's run for office twice, narrowly missing a seat on the New York City Council. Now, as people who never before thought they'd get into politics are gearing up to run for office, running for their lives and ours, she's talking about how you can run too. Black Lives Matter. Me too. Time's up.
0: What's wrong with that? Can't these chicks do anything but whine? Dance break.
1: For the break, you were talking about issues of how the unions used to work in terms of getting their membership really involved in the political process and the campaigning X, Y, Z, and how that didn't quite happen this year the way... It had happened in previous years. My question to you is, is it possible that that in itself was a reflection of the conflict that maybe some of the union members were experiencing under their union umbrella versus their working class umbrella, that some were more for Trump, whether or not they came out that way as union members or not?
2: yes i mean definitely you i i think that people have their own personal racial views gender views everything and you know that may or may not jibe with what the union is doing but a part of my interest and support of working with labor unions is that you can see Over the long term, unions do have the ability to move their members to the left and make them more politically engaged. So it's not something that's going to happen in one election cycle. It's something that has to be built over time. But um, when you have an active organizing unit and you really um, regularly engage with your members beyond just sort of doing a basic renegotiation of a contract you do have the ability to do that. And some unions do it and some don't. And so, you know, I felt that some unions in this past election cycle with Hillary Clinton, you know, they just hadn't been doing that cultivating work and they hadn't been translating the message of why her, um, you know, economic plan was really more beneficial to, you know, to them than the uh, basically the nonsense that that Trump was putting out there, and, um, you know, and the fact that he put in place somebody who, you know, of the Department of Labor who actively had worked to bust unions over the course of his career is a clear indication of where Trump's head is at. And the fact that that, you know, was, uh, that people were not aware of and really uh, understanding what Trump was going to be doing was very frustrating to me. But I think that this is the bigger picture. If you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be a responsible, a good, a long-lasting um, visionary leader, then you really have to be able to talk to people about what their interests are and make sure that they really understand what's going on out there. And that's difficult. That's hard work. It's not something that can be done fast. It definitely, as you can see right now in this interview, it's not a sound bite. You know? And even though we believe the revolution will be televised, <laughs> it is, it's hard to communicate some of these, these concepts. And so as I was out there campaigning, you know, I was talking very much about a housing issue in central Brooklyn or North Brooklyn and trying to talk about some very complex uh, topics in a way that everybody could understand and that they can understand why they need to care about it. And, you know, and to a certain extent, I was not fully successful at getting that message across, which was frustrating.
1: In view of what you are saying about the role of messaging, where do you think you were successful in in really reaching your target voter, and why do you think some of your messaging did not reach?
2: Well, I, um, I you know I should reframe that I. I uh, that my messaging was successful in that uh, you know I got 42 percent of the vote. That was 7,500 people of all of the races across the entire city. I um, I believe that I got the eighth um, most v- votes of an insurgent, or I, I had the most votes of any insurgent c- candidate across the city. And in many cases, I got more votes than. Um, the winners and losers combined in other sit and other districts. So we had a tremendous turnout, and I believe that was because I, you know, did my my legwork and really brought a lot of people to the table and engaged more voters than would have voted
1: otherwise. You absolutely so, did yeah. because that's how you and I met. I mean, yeah. I okay. saw you doing door-to-door canvassing. I am a New Yorker by birth, but I've been voting in upstate New York recently. And I was mad, especially in your case, that I couldn't vote in, in the New York City uh, race. But um, I saw you doing that legwork. And so this insurgency that you led, you're saying you got more votes than other. How did you phrase that again?
2: Right, I got more votes than any other insurgent candidate across the city, um, and even incumbent candidates who won, I got more votes than them. Uh, you know, it, it's really unusual to get that high a voter turnout in a primary in, in New York City. So, you know, our work was it was transformational. It really did make a very big difference, and I do think that my messaging was, um, you know, was good, but I, there were, you know, I was essentially running against the establishment. The establishment, um, the established political community was supporting the incumbent, and, uh, you know, partly I think a lot of these um, decisions are made behind the scenes, and it is not always in the best interest of the public. Much of my campaign was spent talking about housing which is of particular interest to the mayor, and he's staked his claim there. And there was a project in the district, the Bedford Union Armory project that he was very much in support of. And um, I absolutely moved that project to the left. I forced the uh, current council member to change her position on the vote and to remove the uh, luxury condos that were supposed to be included in the project. Unfortunately, the project was still voted through, and it still, I think, is going to be detrimental to the local community. But I certainly came across a lot of people that were like, I'm interested in what you're saying, and, you know, I know what you're saying is true, but so-and-so, you know, told me to vote this way. Or my political, you know, club or group, they're telling me to vote this way. And so I think there were a lot of people that voted against their interests. And, and I you know would say to them, I mean, look, you fully understand that we're, we're not talking about whether you're going to be able to really sort of keep up with rent and have a nice lifestyle. We're talking about whether Brooklyn will be black at all. And you see this happening and unfolding over and over and over, and it's accelerating. So knowing this, why would you support an elected official or a candidate that is open to using public land, public resources, your tax dollars to build luxury housing that you will never afford, your children will never afford, and most of your neighbors will never afford?
1: This question of voting against one's interests, even behind closed doors, I find fascinating. I hear you talking about it on a racial level. I hear you talking about it on a community level. But I'm also fascinated because I'm saying to myself, is that what happened with white women in particular who voted so overwhelmingly for Trump and then again for Roy Moore. Is that what it is that we're really confronting? And you as an anthropologist, I, I you know, it sounds like, is this the story of the tribe?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I think we always have to accept that, you know, we, even though we can be observers of our own culture, we are also participants and victims of. So women are just as likely to participate in the patriarchy that oppresses us, as, um, as we are to, to suffer from it and, and be victims of it. Um, so th- that I, to me is an, partially an explanation that you have women who are part of that victimization, who have internalized and actually are um, now carrying out the oppression you know, we see. I don't have a complete explanation for why there was such overwhelming support of Roy Moore. I mean, it is astounding to me that someone could go that far having been banned from a mall. How bad do you have to be that the local mall would say, I'm sorry, you can't come to our Gap." You're going to have to go somewhere else. I mean, (laughs) no stores ever turn away business, no matter who you are. So you have had to have behaved so badly in that environment for you to now be on the banned list and still not have anybody take legal action against you. And I hope that somebody, you know, one of those kids' parents or somebody, you know, decides to sue them all. Because frankly, if they had that much of a problem to ban them, they should have pressed charges. Like, you know, that's that's crazy. I don't know. I don't know yeah. why we see this.
1: I don't know why we do it either, but I do know that you have transited from that ten year old who may have been excited about it and said I can't possibly, it's crazy for me to even think of doing this in terms of running, uh, for an election and that you somehow transited that and became the person who did decide that it was possible for you to run at any level. Maybe, you know, I, I'm not all that impressed with running for president. You know, it's like, really do, do I really want to think a a club that doesn't want to have me is really such a great club, (laughs) you know? So I'm, perfectly happy with the club that you did decide to sign on to let's just talk about this who you are as a person and um in some very specific ways your day job is right
2: now I have to figure out what I'm going to be doing with the rest of my life you know, when I, I, ran for office, you know, I wasn't working and now I've got to figure out what's, you know, what's next for me. Um, I think because I spoke truth to power, that means that working in, uh, you know, in local government is probably not an option at this time. And uh, frankly, I don't know if I want to do that anymore. You know, I know how the sausage is made and, um, Is
1: there a difference, though, between saying you don't want to work in government and is that also saying you would not run again?
2: No, I don't want to make my, um, you know, gainful employment in government. I will continue to be engaged um, in local politics as well as citywide politics. And I you will probably see me on a ballot again. I am, um, you know, obviously very articulate and interested in talking, but also interested in motivating other people to be the, their best selves. So I think motivational speaking is, is in the future. I
1: hope so. I hope <laughs> so. And in terms of your family, your parents being so um, inspirational or motivational to you, you said their activism. What did your parents do or what do they do now?
2: They were both attorneys, and my father worked for many years as, and essentially an organizer, uh, all before it was called that, a community organizer. So he worked for nonprofits and, you know, and other stuff like that around housing. So housing was always very important to me, and, and my, I think my the basis of my beliefs is if you don't have a roof, uh, you know, over your head, there's just you're not going to be able to do anything else in life. So you need to have a stable roof over your head, and then you need to have access to a good job. And so, economic justice and and, and housing justice are very important to me. Then uh, my mother was also an attorney, and you know continues to work even though she's retired. Um, continues to work as an arbitrator. So has always been interested in helping people, you know, resolve. Um, uh, you know, arguments in their favor, um, and and really sort of finding the best uh, the 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 best outcome to any kind of conflict.
1: Now, there so, aren't that many families where both parents are attorneys to begin with, much less African American families. Where are your parents born?
2: Uh, my mom was born here in New York. My grandparents, uh, her parents, came up from the South um, from. South Carolina, and from Georgia, mm-hmm. and uh, then my father grew up in um, North Carolina, and most of his family, most of that side of my family, is still there. He um, now lives in Michigan, uh, but he, you know, both of my parents were always very smart, and they had, um, you know, high achieving parents. My father ended up um, actually graduating early and went to Morehouse at sixteen. Uh, he became very engaged in the civil rights m- movement. And at the time, um, I guess back then they used to call him a race man mm-hmm. because that's what he, he was concerned about and was one of the founding members of, uh, SNCC, the student nonviolent really? coordinating committee. So, you know, he was super involved, um, from a very young age and, uh, eventually came up to New York and, you know, some of my parents met here and, um, you know, we, um, and continued to be uh, active here.
1: So your activism is genetic almost. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, I think that that was just, or maybe this is just like what my, my, my um, parents' friends were like, but I, you know, when I grew up, we didn't have play dates. We went to rallies and protests and there would be a kid's group over there. And, you know, there'd be a couple of designated adults who would, you know, take us through, uh, some games and stuff, but we'd also be making signs and <laughs> learning chants, and then the adults would be over here doing whatever they were doing, um, and instead of, you know, nowadays, I guess people always find babysitters, but there was none of that when I was growing up. I sat in the corner in the back of, you know, whatever hall that the community meeting was happening with my coloring books and other stuff, so you know even so i heard and um, and was engaged with all of these community activists um, and and their the movements and and heard the language of the messaging even as i was you know playing with my toys and so i guess whether or not i wanted to it seeped it seeped in
1: when we come back with our guest A. Day fox we're going to talk more about Building Healthy Communities by Seeing Ourselves as Fit, after the break.
0: They say cheap objectification isn't witty, it's hot. (laughs) Equal work and wages worth the fight. Sing us a new one. On demand, abortion, every city. Okay, but no gun control. Won't these women ever get a life? Struggling myself don't mean a whole lot. I've come to realize that teaching of a to stand and fight is the only way I struggle so bad.
1: Ooh. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show, talking politics and running for office with our guest, A.D. Fox. She's done it herself twice and is gearing up for another campaign and telling you how you can run too. Black Lives Matter, me too. Time's up. For you, what does this moment in history mean in terms of the electoral process and what we need to do?
2: Well, I'm actually really happy that there is this uh, surge of interest in running for office. And a a lot of times when I was out, you know, and doing my door knocking, You know, I'd come across people who are like, ah, you know, politics, that sucks. I, You know, I hate it. I'm not getting involved in it. And all those people are crooks. And I would say, you know, actually this is probably precisely why you should not only vote, but you should run because we need more, more, um, a variety of voices engaged in the political process. And clearly most people are having a hard time Uh, Most elected officials are having a hard time really connecting and engaging with voters and making people understand why, um, you know, their voting one way or the other is in their best self-interest. And so maybe we need new voices. Maybe you know, the voices that have been in there are just not doing the job. And it's not just that people are, you know, voting Democrat or Republican, it's that you know, 80% of the people are not voting, period. And so we have to ask that question, why are they not voting? What is it do they feel is not, um, why do they feel like they will not be served? And maybe we need to address that. I mean, the reality is, even in this last election, presidential election, Hillary Clinton got more votes than any other president ever in history, right? And even still, this was not enough, but the but, you know, the, the fact is a ton of people just didn't vote. We did our work. We got out there. We got the people out there, and we got them to vote for her, but partly because of the electoral college and partly because of the lack of voting, we ended up in the situation that we're in. So now we need to ask, um, what's going on? Why are people? not willing to vote, and we need to be able to speak that language. And so when I hear somebody who says that, then I say, well, maybe you, you are the person we need in there. Maybe you are the person that will be able to articulate and we'll make sure that, that people in government are hearing from the disenfranchised populations. Uh, what needs to be happening so that we are focusing on the issues that matter to the majority of people.
1: When we aired our International Women's Day show, which was a show about the Women's March, it was called We Are the Ones We've Been Waiting For. That was the title of the show. And that's what I'm hearing you say in this, so what does it mean for those people that we are waiting for? What does it mean to run?
2: It's really hard. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Um, unless, it, unless you have really been embedded in the political establishment and basically are following um, exactly what um, the, the power players are telling you to do, you are going to be working against um, a, a system that is not designed to let you in, and you are going to be doing a lot of work on your own. And I, you know, th- this time I, I began the campaign in January 2017 and we went to September, but that really was not the beginning of my the campaign the big the beginning was back in 2012 when I decided to run the first time so I have done this now two times and I um, a lot of the groundwork that I built in 2013 was able to propel me even further forward this time. So it was, it was a tremendous amount of work. And because I didn't have the local um, uh, political elected officials and, and their um, uh, political st- structures in place, uh, there were certain buildings where I wasn't allowed in. There were um, certain one one centers.
1: second. Wait a minute. There I, are certain I am buildings you that me. you are not allowed in. What does that mean?
2: They. I was not allowed to enter the building to door knock or speak to their voters. Senior centers where I was not allowed in to speak to those voters, so they wouldn't even know that there was somebody else running.
1: Mm. Wow.
2: And if they allow one candidate to come in, they're supposed to allow all, but that is not what happened. You know, I had my fair share of supporters who would call and make noises and, you know, do whatever had to be done. And so I would be allowed to come in, but I wouldn't be able to come in and speak more than once, whereas the the other person was able to come daily if they wanted to. That's the difference.
1: That is. Therefore, goes to the issue when you say there's a lot of work that has to be done. What is the work very specifically that people have to do when they're talking about running? Because this is something that one might not normally think about when you think of canvassing neighborhoods or you think about getting signing petitions or something like that.
2: Well, I'm I'm doing this the old fashioned way. You know, at the end of the day, your relationships with human beings is what moves people. And when we replace that with, you know, bombarding people with video, TV and ads and stuff, I think that's where you end up, where people are getting um, just crazy information that leads them to make choices that really don't make a lot of sense. I'm not going to lie, those forms of communication do work, because clearly we see with Donald Trump mm-hmm. that worked, but it is, not, it is not good information. And so if we're going to counteract that, then we actually have to get out there and do that work. having one-on-one human beings communicating. I mean, it is far more powerful when your aunt, your sister, the guy who lives down the hall, when they come and say, oh, you should vote for this person, that is going to supersede anything that you get in the mail, anything that you see on TV, that's gonna supersede everything. But you've gotta get the aunt, the sister, the guy down the hall, all of these other people to be on board and that only happens by building relationships and it takes time.
1: We talk about the influence of money in elections. Can anybody win in this day and age without a major media campaign?
2: I don't think so. I think money has taken such an outsized portion of the race. I don't know that we can get beyond that. And then frankly, those were the things that most blocked me in both elections. This time around, the hotel Trades Council spent actually $150,000 dollars to support this candidate. And I made the connection, although it was hard to quite verbalize this in an easy way, but you know basically saying to people, "What do you think the hotel industry cares about Central and North Brooklyn for?" And when people started to think about that, then they were like, "Oh, okay so in the short term over the next year or two that's not going to mean much but in the long term over the next 10 years that means that this neighborhood is not intended for you mm-hmm. they are in, in, interested in the long game and they and this is to be a luxury neighborhood with hotels that's why they will spend that kind of money and you will not be able to afford to live here but you know it takes a couple of steps to draw those connections for people. And, and that was the challenge of you know, my messaging. And when you've got a Hotel uh, Trades Council essentially putting out mailers that mimicked all of my messaging, people were like, well, what was the difference between the two of them? Even though what was in the mailer was the exact opposite of what the, the candidate or the council member was actually saying, And it was not even what she was promising, but you know.
1: Where we are now, you're not right this minute running, but you are going to run again. Right.
2: I think I, I think I have a lot to offer, and so I'll have to figure out in what capacity and where and mm-hmm. what opportunities there are. But it is really challenging. You know, I took a year off from my life. I didn't. You know, I wasn't working. I was focused solely on this. I had to raise. Uh, I raised eighty three thousand dollars by myself, which meant you know to to raise that money meant just calling people and saying hey remember we um, you know ate some play-doh together in second grade so I'm running for office can you give me some money and you know that's hard mm-hmm. um, I'm now totally you know um, uh, you know totally fine with it so um, I can I can cold call with the best of them um, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's fine and I you know and then basically after doing all that I had to call Uh, people and say hey can I count on you to vote for me hey can you come out and volunteer can you door knock for me and um and over and over and over again and it's you know you get tired after the fourth call but I still had to do Mm -hmm. 25,000 calls but
1: the reason they did all of that If you raised $83,000, then that means that you were raising from a lot of people who really did not have a lot to give, and that cannot be undervalued. If you did get the votes that you did as, as an insurgent, that means that people who otherwise would have just gone along to get along or go along with the major media campaign did not do that. So whether you are running again for this office or that office i think what that indicates is the person that they decided to believe in and the person they decided to vote for so who Ada fox and why do you think people should vote for you
2: i really do care about these issues and i care about this this community and i care about all people i don't like to see injustice. I get frustrated when I see um, my tax dollars, your tax dollars, and everybody's tax dollars squandered on things that have no benefit to us. The first moment that I started to think about running, uh, you know, I started to think, well, you know, I used to think that you had to have some skill, be uh, you know, super smart, or be some, you know, h- political history professor or something, and. I I think the first time I thought, man, uh, you know, that senator is an idiot. And then I thought, well, if he can be stupid and do it, you know, so why not me? And that's, you know, the moment I could say, why not me, then... It allowed me to really start figuring out the next steps and how to really go about doing it. And I put this question to everybody, why not you? This is really what our civic duty is about. We all need to be active participants in our democracy in order for it to function properly. And that does mean running for office. Maybe you don't do it all the time. Maybe you don't do it as a career, but we need our voices in there and we need a variety of voices. We've had, you know, old white males basically being the only voice in positions of power for so long. And that doesn't serve anybody. You know, we are a stronger democracy when we have more variety, more voices, more people who uh, can inform the legislation, the policies, the economic decisions that drive this country forward. So I do my own country and myself a disservice if I deny my skill set and my knowledge and my capability to my community and, you know, the broader on a broader sense to the country. So that's why that's why I should run.
1: I think you should, too. And I am just one of very many who have enjoyed listening to you today and realizing you are the one, A. Day Fox, and hopefully others will join you in that endeavor. So thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me on the show. i really delighted in having a, you know an in-depth conversation that is really meaningful and I hope will be uh, encouraging and supportive of other people, other women who want to run for office, this is doable. It's hard, but it's not impossible. We have all done hard things. Uh, you know, every woman who's a mother has given birth. That's hard as heck. <laughs> you can do this, um, but it just means you know mapping out a plan and it, you know putting one foot in front of the other. That's how you get through this. And we need you. So. Don't don't cut yourself out. We actually do need you.
1: Today on the Janice Adams show, our guest has been 8A Fox. For more about her work and the music heard on today's show visit my website janiceadams.com that's j-a-n-u-s adams.com and what a feast of music it's been sweet honey in the rock Ella's song Nellie mckay mother of pearl odetta singing bob dylan's paths of victory and les mccann and eddie harris performing gene mcdaniel's compared to what From the studios of WJFF, our thanks to our guest, 8A Fox, and to you for joining us today. Janus Adams Show is a production of Janus Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.
0: Trying to make it real compared to what...